Hey folks, it's Michael. I think someday I'm going to get over recording these little intros for our episodes, but it's one of the many things that I do now, and I think a lot of us do, that getting a PhD doesn't prepare you for. But I am excited to talk about the guest for today's show. Um, for this interview, I spoke with Chris Weibel, who is a professor in the School of Public Affairs at the University of Colorado, Denver. Chris is a major player in the field of policy studies and the study of policy processes. Um, try to say that a couple times fast. And we talked about the study of policy processes, particularly from the perspective of the advocacy coalition framework, which focuses your attention on a particular policy subsystem to look at what are the actors that are engaging in that subsystem to really make things happen, and then potentially how that subsystem engages with other systems. And really, this underlying tension of the need to both, in Chris's terms, parallel process within um, government so that we can address multiple problems at once, but then also to address the inevitable interdependencies that we see between these subsystems as um, you know, exemplified by, as Chris again says, the, the current situation with COVID, which really requires um, the integration of multiple disciplinary perspectives to address. So I'd say this was a, a very academic conversation in the best sense of the term. I hope you all enjoy it. Chris Weibel, how's life? Yeah, no, thanks, Mike. Yeah, it is, uh, especially during the pandemic, it's it's changed, right? And all of us are, I mean, we're among the lucky ones uh, to be able to work from home and, uh, you know, teach online or at least do our research at home and get in our full of Zoom meetings. Um, yeah, I was thinking yesterday, actually, about the name of this podcast, Finding Sustainability, and I've been wondering about you know, all the different situations that people are in and, and wondering what's sustaining folks these days. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what is sustaining you? And are there adaptations um, that you've made that have been working for you? Uh, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> in part, I think for me, I mean, uh, since this kind of began in early March with, you know, when it, once it became intense, uh, I just had kind of two urges. One is to, an urge to kind of make sense of it. Um, somehow, I guess, find meaning or an understanding of it. And somehow, in my own little way, uh, it can kind of trivial, somehow contribute um, to it. You know, and, and, and clearly, neither you or I are on the front lines of this, this issue, um, either as researchers or medical professions or working at grocery stores or whatever what role do we play or can we play? And, you know, beyond, let's say, supporting our friends and our family and so forth. And then for me, like, you know, I, I was on a, a Zoom call. This was in early March with Daniel Norstedt, who's a scholar at uh, Uppsala University in Sweden. And he's a crisis management scholar and him and I work together and, and uh, we kind of share a lot of the same interests in terms of just trying to make sense of things. And, and actually we decided to write a paper on it actually to start off. Like, you know, what, how do we interpret this? How do we, um, and what reflections can, do we have uh, on the pandemic, at least from the perspective of the field of policy studies. And, uh, and so we actually gathered eight scholars together and from around the world. And we wrote a paper and, you know, got published in policy sciences. And, you know, really it was just, I mean, for me personally, it was, I was just trying to like, okay, so what, you know, what can my academic training and knowledge there, what can, how it can be used to kind of interpret, uh, again, draw meaning into what we're experiencing. Uh, at the same time, I was hoping it, you know, might help students and other people too. Uh, and also challenge the field, you know, you know, as policy scholar, at least, you know, uh, I'm in the field of policy studies and stuff. Uh, from this field, what can we, how can this help us understand the pandemic as we're experiencing it? 
Okay, so that's interesting. So you published this paper as a standard economic piece. Um, I'd love to hear about what the findings were, right? Like what were the conclusions from this exercise? Yeah, you know, the big, the big nugget actually is, is a reflection on academia, I think, in general. And this, this, there's positive and negatives to this, right? Because uh, there's, there's a lot of fast publications coming out making, especially in the medical field, let's say. Uh, but I think everywhere, trying to um, inform or understand things. And a lot of these um, paper, papers aren't coming through uh, a, a strict peer review process. And, 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 and there could be some dangers to that because maybe we're publishing things too fast or, or, or so forth. At the same time, uh, we're also in a situation where there's a lot of knowledge in academia that can actually inform um, what, uh, you know, how we're perceiving and interpreting the events around us. And so there's, it's kind of like a balance between not trying to publish too fast and maybe set the world in the wrong direction, or, or if we have that power to do so, to kind of draw in some insights and reflections to help us inform. And hopefully what we did was that is basically we we didn't you know our papers is basically a set of reflections and insights about COVID nineteen and uh, and it was kind of different in that you know I think for typical like if Mike if you and I were to study COVID nineteen using our typical methods I think we'd probably maybe start now I don't know and we'd probably publish it two three years from now and and as a you know uh, some sort of like you know historical almost. Uh, um, interpretation of what's going on or portrayal of what's going on. And, and we want to do it more in real time. And that, I think that right there is just different, actually. You just don't see that very often. Um, and you know, among the insights, you know, I'll direct you to the paper. I can give you the link. Uh, but what we did is we basically, uh, in order to write this paper fast, and we wrote it within basically two weeks, um, we got 10 scholars, including me and Daniel Norstedt, who had everybody write 800 words uh, based on a couple prompts. And then Daniel and I did some heavy editing to make sure that they all sync together and draw out some lessons and, and insights. And, and some of the lessons and insights, you know, um, are things like, hey, you know, like we do have a crisis management uh, and crisis response literature that um, does a really good job of helping understand these um, kind of shocks to our system and how they're cross boundaries and the type of stress they put on society. And, and a lot of the things we're seeing um, has been written on. It's actually, it's been kind of, I don't know if, you know, prediction isn't the right word, but it's not surprising. And, and also, we also know that in these times of crises, um, it's really important for government to legitimize choices in public policy, what we're doing. And, and then it gets into the role of both science as a legitimizing agent, like reason that's based on science, but also, you know, things like even even things like patriotism or emotions and, and the role of these other kind of elements of kind of our society and humanity that also are used to uh, legitimize policy. And, and to the extent that these work or don't work really lead to the extent that we have, you know, maybe compliance or maybe even, you know, a lot of conflict that's productive or a lot of conflict that isn't productive. Um, you know, yes, you know, how I'm, getting through this, you know, I, uh, this summer I'm going to start another project on policy legitimacy. We'll, we'll look at the role of science and emotions and how governments are responding to this pandemic. Uh, and, and so hopefully we'll get that out in a few months. Um, okay. I mean, so for you, then a big part of this is orienting your activities around what's happening now. Yeah. I mean, I've, I truly tried to pivot as much of my research to this issue as I can. Uh, Okay. And I mean, I'm interested in whether you, you see this as an obligation. I mean, you mentioned questioning the role of academia here. I mean, I once went to a talk by Bill Clark from Harvard, I think at a Resilience Alliance conference a while back, and he said something that really struck me, um, basically exhorted the audience to not think of our academic field, um, I think maybe in his words, as as, as if it was just any academic field that his point was that, you know, our academic field is inherently applied and that changes the role that we have as academics and maybe the relationship that we have um, with the society that we're in and the groups that we're studying, for example. Yes, no, absolutely. But also I, I agree with you. Um, 
but also it, it raises questions of what it means for, let's say, a scholar to, uh, let's say, draw relevance from their field for society. And I do think one of the um, um, main ways that we can have an impact that we don't talk about enough is through our teaching. And this paper I wrote for policy science is in my mind, I was imagining a student, like in a class almost right now on policy, wanting to draw some sort of insights from the field and, and wanting a paper like that. And so in a way I kind of imagined students as the audience and I am teaching a course on COVID-19 and government responses to it. Uh, in part because, yeah, I mean, I, maybe I could write an op-ed or maybe I could um, do this or that. But I, I do think the influence of our research on understanding the world through our teaching is something that we don't um, upplay enough. It is it is important, and uh, and not that uh, you know, you know. I actually am a big fan of working with government as much as we can, and you know, supporting stakeholders in our community and so forth. Uh, and and you know, may, I'll do that with my research too um, on this, but also. Like, you know, my research tip is not typically around COVID-19. So a lot of, I guess, my contacts and outreach um, aren't in the health field or in the disaster response field or the crisis response and management field. In a way, you almost have to start from where you're at and, and think, okay, so how can, how can I influence this, this uh, and at least have positive impact, let's say, in how we're dealing with this pandemic. And for me, it was, okay, I, I, can, I'm, I can publish. I'm good at trying to think of... I contribute to how academics think of this and I can work with my students and uh, you know uh, maybe sometime you know get close to the front line if I have something to contribute. Yeah I mean the teaching is its own big topic as well right? Um, something that I've thought a fair amount about since starting an academic career is the strangeness of essentially having two jobs each of which is kind of invisible to the other. Right, so we have the teaching side and the research side, and it's always felt a little strange to me when I go to an academic conference. The, the educational aspect of our identities is mostly invisible there, except I suppose insofar as you can infer how good someone might be at lecturing based on how good a presenter they are. And I think that invisibility makes it hard for us to internalize teaching into our sense of professional self as much as would be beneficial for our students, for example. No, that's that's right, actually. But I think the challenge, and one of the reasons why I think teaching sometimes gets pushed to the back seat of our discussions, is because the impact of our teaching is is so far in the future. I mean, yeah, right. It's diffuse, and it is. Uh, but it, but its impact is is and can be non-trivial. Um, and it's it's kind of I find it kind of funny and, and I guess maybe a little bit sad, but you know, like you'll, you might be at a faculty meeting and you see all these faculty members are talking about how they can have an impact on the world. You know, it's like, you know, it's only if we can, you know, reach out to 400 future government officials and, and try to influence how they think. And they, a little bit of know that they're teaching 400 future government officials right now. And, but the, but the, but the focus is often not on them enough. <clears throat> and not that, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm a big fan of engaged scholarship, and, and I think you and I have talked about this, and, and of community-focused you know, um, research. Uh, nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think it's fantastic. And also, I'm a big fan. I think we need a place in academia for um, research that basically aims to affect the science that we do, uh, because uh, we are a community of, of scientists, and, uh, and, 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 you know, we need to focus on each other and shaping um, the game we play and improving that game. So, so I, I do think it's, and some of us have more strengths in some of those areas than others. Um, I know a lot of colleagues who are way better than me at working with community um, engagement. So, I, you know, I, I am glad where I'm at with the School of Public Affairs that we're, we actually are, are very open to different forms of, of um, you know, supporting our community and different forms of scholarship um, to kind of play to the strengths of us as individuals. I mean, that's great. I think that's the direction that we need to be heading in academia is valuing these different roles and positions. Um, something that I've struggled with is my perception that teaching centric roles are usually afforded less prestige and less money than more research focused positions. Oh, that's true. And <laughs> that's a huge problem. And actually, I think uh, 
um, I don't know how to solve that problem, uh, but usually I wish I could solve it actually. Um, I think a lot of uh, people uh, filling the instructor positions are underpaid and, and uh, undervalued. I mean, right. And it's often those folks that loom largest in terms of the student experience. Yep, that's right. That's right. Um, that's a, I think that's a problem with academia right now. Uh, but also say, you know, for, you know, for people who do research too, I mean, it, I mean, teaching is time consuming actually, and, and it does take away from research. And there is like a bit of a uh, kind of focus where, you, where you're good at. And some people bring in a lot of grant money and they can buy out of courses or maybe their position is a low teaching low to begin with. And, uh, and for them, their contribution to academia and the world is primarily through the research and that's fine. What's sad is, is, the, is the discrepancy in pay between the instructors and let's say the researchers. Um, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, Chris. I think that it's important when you're talking about a problem to not automatically slide into a narrative with heroes and villains, right? So we could fall into a perspective that says that the teachers are the heroes and the researchers are the villains, and that's not helpful or accurate um, because we don't necessarily need to vilify one set of folks in order to help another set of folks. Right, but yeah, that's that would be counterproductive. So Chris, I'd like to um, switch gears a little bit to talk more about your own background. I have it in my notes that you got your PhD in um, ecology from the University of California in Davis, and that before that you were a Peace Corps volunteer. So I'd love to hear, Chris, a bit more about your own journey. I mean, I hate to do this in a way because I don't like it when people do it to me, basically talk to me about their perceptions of me to me. But, you know, the first couple of times I met you, I remember thinking, wow, this person really seems like a kind of natural academic, someone who thinks about methods, thinks about research questions, is very um, thoughtfully articulate about traditionally academic topics. And so I'd be curious uh, about your own perceptions of your professional identity and the path you took to get you to where you are, whether or not you had a particular aha moment, or whether or not there was a certain mentor or teacher that helped you in this kind of diffuse way that we were just talking about. Yeah. Hmm. No, that's a that's a uh, difficult, complex question to uh, answer. But I I can give you a, a brief view. I mean, I, I didn't consider being a professor until probably my third or fourth year as a PhD student. And I mean, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and that did alter the path because I was a mathematics and statistics undergraduate at the University of Washington. And when I went to the, uh, uh, the Peace Corps, I, this was in Antigua in the Caribbean, uh, I got involved with community development a lot. And, and I didn't call it this at the time, but I got interested in how people resolve and kind of deal with collective action and, uh, you know, community conflicts, uh, um, even the role of an outside expert in these processes, which I was at the time. I wasn't much of an expert, but I was definitely an outsider. And then you, then you just kind of fall into this and that. You know, I went to, I got a master's in public administration. Um, and there I took a course with Peter May at the University of Washington on policy theory, uh, theories of the policy process, I think was, might've been the title. And there I, you know, I met Paul Sabatier and, and uh, yeah, I didn't, the only thing I knew about him really at the time, besides aspects of his research, but his reputation to me at the time was he was a fantastic social scientist and one who took it very seriously and was very rigorous in what he did. And that's why I said, you know, I, I like my um, MPA that I got, but I didn't think I, I, I left me kind of hungry for more rigor and a little more sophistication. And I wanted to be challenged and I wanted, didn't quite know what it meant to be a social scientist, but I figured I'd, um, you know, Paul Sabatier would know. <laughs> so I, I just jumped into that program. But, you know, that program, to get a PhD in that program, um, you have to, um, well, you basically have to jump into uh, an ecology program. So I got my PhD in ecology. That's right. And so, um, and there I had the luxury of, of actually kind of learning a different discipline in the natural sciences, which was great. 
Um, I took a couple policy courses, but not many. And I, but I also had some powerhouse hitters as advisors, including Paul Sabatier and Mark LaBelle showed up soon after I got there. And I feel blessed to have both of those as my mentors. And, and uh, you know, it really wasn't until I went to an academic conference. I think it was, you know, it was in San Francisco. It might have been um, American Political Science Association meeting or something. And I just remember sitting in the back as a, like, you know, kind of just kind of observing presentations. And I realized that, yeah, I can play this game. And yeah, I think I can do well at it. And yeah, I think I, I think I can do this. And when I went to Davis originally, I kind of thought I'd be like more of a broker between the natural sciences and the policy world. And that was kind of where I thought I'd kind of land. Um, but, you know, pretty soon I realized I really liked the research. I really liked the teaching. And I became passionate about the topic. And it's right, my PhD is in ecology. So I, uh, there's benefits and costs to that because I don't have a lot of the baggage of, of uh, <laughs> knowing the literature, which which can work to your advantage. But sometimes you feel like you need to like, you know, sometimes when you know a lot, it kind of limits your creativity. You know, maybe someone did it before, but you didn't realize it. And, you know, usually anytime you do something on your own, you always do it with your own little particular spin. So I realized that, you know, sometimes, you know, diving too much into the literature can actually, you know, not just slow you down, but actually hinder your creativity. At the same time, uh, gosh, you know, Mike, I've spent a long time trying to pick up uh, depth and breadth in political science, public administration, public management, even um, public policy, which was easier than all those others. Um, so I do feel like I've had to kind of catch up on things. Yeah, I mean, Chris, would you call yourself a political scientist at this point? Not to political scientist. No, I'm a policy scholar. And uh, if I'm talking to my neighbor who has no idea what a policy scholar is, I'll tell him I'm a political scientist. Uh, and I don't tell anybody I'm an ecologist unless I'm, you know, wanting to be funny or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I'd like to dive a bit more into this policy studies topic. I know you've been a co-editor of this book, Theories of the Policy Process, for a bit. And to motivate this conversation now, I'd like to ask you how you would respond to someone who asks well, why do I need to study the policy process? Why do I need to look at how the sausage is made? Um, why can't I just compare two different policies, say a cap and trade scheme and a, and a carbon tax, and just look at the outcomes and use that to understand which policy is preferable? Yeah. Well, first off, let's step back a sec and just talk about what kind of policy processes, um, what that means. I mean, for, uh, you know, first off, you can take policy, public policy as a field of study. And I often break it into two different components. I break it into, and these are intersecting and overlapping, but they're still useful to separate them. Um, one is kind of the field of study of policy analysis. And, and that's kind of your benefit-cost analysis, your distribution analysis. And usually it's kind of more applied. Usually it, it gets around, let's say, um, evaluating or, or forecasting different policy decisions. Um, and then there's policy processes. And, and, and this um, area of, of study uh, essentially focuses on um, uh, public policy. And let's define that as all those decisions that governments make. It could be laws, regulations, uh, executive orders, um, and so forth. But also it could include even all the kind of the rules and use, uh, the practices, uh, let's say, of street-level bureaucrats and so forth. Um, but, the, but the field is more than just um, the folks on those policies. It's basically all the kind of the politics and kind of events and contexts that kind of shape those decisions and the, the content of those policy decisions and the outcomes of them. Um, and so in a way, it, the field emerged in part because it, you know, traditional folks, focus of, let's say, political science may be different decision-making venues, let's say courts or the legislature or bureaucracy. But sometimes when you think of policy, uh, public policy issues kind of interweave through all these different decision-making venues and involve public opinion, involve, let's say, you know, socioeconomic status of a country or whatever. Um, and so we needed a field that was kind of, you know, kind of grasped and focused more on the complexity of our political system. And, and embrace more of the, um, the components of it than, let's say, 
traditional um, fields had done in the past. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why in policy processes, why it often takes, let's say, a subsystem or a system perspective, because it, it incorporates all these different pieces and pulls them together. Um, and this is important to study for a lot of reasons. One is it's, a, it's really, it's a field of study of change. And, and, and I think change or the lack of change, but uh, are both kind of part of the human condition. I mean, things are constantly changing to some extent. And understanding these changes um, helps us make sense of the world, but also uh, might actually affect how we interact with the world and how we want to produce those changes. So if you want to, uh, you know, think about why the world might be doing, um, you know, might be responding to COVID in some ways or, or not in other ways, we need to look at the processes by which our government functions. And, and ideally, if we can understand those processes, we can affect them, or at least portray them in such a way that we can understand them better and maybe draw meaning out of them. Okay, so would you say that a focus on policy processes is a response to um, what I perceive to be an historical dominance of a kind of ahistorical, apolitical focus in policy analysis? I mean, I remember when I was in my PhD program, I was I took courses in cost-benefit analysis, environmental economics, etc., and I do remember that there was a, a distinct lack of emphasis on power asymmetries in that material. Um, one example that sticks in my mind is this in cost-benefit analysis, a focus on willingness to pay and willingness to accept as measures of how much someone values something. And in my mind, I remember just thinking, okay, it's it's obvious that these things would correlate positively with wealth. So generally, why are we valuing um, folks with more wealth and more access to articulated markets, why are we valuing their preferences more? Well, I don't, uh, I think, and that's a, that's a huge question right there. I do think um, the field of policy studies, um, like especially in the sixties and so forth, um, had roots definitely in um, kind of technocratic slash maybe more economic um, ideas of, of let's say um, aspects of let's say fact value dichotomies. Um, and I think you saw policy analysis in particular um, have that um, impression in part because in the path of let's say legitimizing public policies, um, there's currency in our society to say that you're doing it based on some sort of objective science, let's say. Policy processes had some of that in it in the past, uh, but because it's always a focus on politics, I think you always had some elements or more elements, let's say, of, of uh, power in politics and the fact that science is often used as um, political salvo and supporting decisions that, that it was, I would say the, the technocratic aspect is less, but it's still there. But I think also, I mean, this is, as we go from, uh, as you know, currently we're kind of living in this kind of almost like a post-factual age um, and where truth is really questioned um, and where we realize the, in the, in understanding the complexity of the world, you, you know, each of our scientific lenses actually offers legitimate portrayal of that problem. And, and sometimes, you know, we can pick and choose what science we wants to reinforce our beliefs. And this, and this, and nothing against the science, you can be very much an objective economist, but your, but your portrayal of a problem is going to be very different than, let's say, uh, an ecologist doing their job perfectly. Uh, and then it gets into like, you know, how do we integrate these different sciences into our decision-making? And you see it right now at the pandemic, you know, the extent that we're incorporating, let's say public health, uh, economic, even various societal um, indicators of the problem and, and, and hopefully make good decisions. I mean, this seems to relate to what you were talking about earlier about the potential benefits of not having, you know, the tunnel vision associated with expertise in a particular field because it creates these barriers. That's exactly right. But also, what, I mean, it gets into the question, what science do you pay attention to and which ones do you ignore and to what extent can science be used uh, to suppress and oppress populations? and certain voices. And that's, and that's, that's a huge problem. And that's also where I think, I, you know, when it comes into like science and academia and usefulness in any society, I do think it's based on reflection of 
the strength of that democracy, the strength of the representation and, and who's part of the decision making. Because science itself doesn't make the decisions. It's basically the, our leaders. Um, and we want those leaders to uh, you know, be informed and pay attention, but we also want them um, to have a value system that's reflective of society at large. Um, okay, yeah. I mean, do you think that as a part of, say, any graduate programs curriculum in the sciences or social sciences, there should be um, a module on these issues? You know, I'm thinking of philosophy of science, sociology of science, um, the perspectives that I associate with science and technology studies, for example. I think they should, but I, I think it, it, uh, it, we almost need a, a, a field that talks about just the role of like knowledge. I would say I would include science, but also even other forms of knowledge outside of science um, and our own thought processes and, uh, and how it enters into our vocabularies of how we um, portray and understand the world. And so, I, I, so yeah, I would support that, but I think I would, I would just broaden it because, you know, a lot of times you don't need science to make a decision, you know, uh, you know, back in the old days, when uh, the old days, pre pandemic, you know, when we had, you know, when immigration was a big issue and we had kids in cages, we don't, you know, we don't need a psychologist to tell us that science tells us that this is a bad thing. Uh, and emotional intelligence and empathy, right? Yeah, and, and and that's where I think you know we you almost you don't you want to de-emphasize science in some regards because it, we don't need it to legitimize every decision we make and or to be concerned about a problem. It's a, but sometimes science can actually um, show us that this is a problem, maybe by the extent or the change over time, uh, the seriousness. Right. Yeah. To me, um, the best example of that is the use of scientific knowledge to demonstrate stratospheric ozone depletion which then led to the Montreal Protocol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, Chris, I'd like to introduce a more specific um, topic now, this concept of the advocacy coalition framework that I know is figured prominently in, in your examination of policy processes. You know, I was reading a bit about Paul Sabatier before this, understanding that he started the advocacy coalition framework. And I found out that he was in Germany at the same time that um, Lynn Ostrom was, when she was developing the institutional analysis and development framework of the IID framework, and that they actually shared some ideas, which was just kind of fascinating to learn about. Right. I think that's, there's a, yeah. So, yeah. So let's kind of back up again. You know, I do think the advocacy coalition framework, let's just call it the ACF to abbreviate for now is a, a framework uh, or a, a, called a lens or an approach for understanding policy processes. And in brief, yeah, it, it focuses on, first off, you know, on, on centers on, you know, what explains policy change uh, is kind of one kind of component to it. Um, and it focuses on the politics surrounding it, which um, really just involves the focus on um, how different uh, people and organizations in the system uh, coalesce into um, this framework calls it coalitions, but you can call it teams, you can call it factions or whatever you want to call it, but essentially coalitions of people with like-minded beliefs about how the world should be. And also has a focus on how basically the role of information in these systems and how people update their understanding and learn over time. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, the usefulness of it, it is just, again, a lens for understanding policy processes and portraying it. What's interesting about it is a research program, which means that there's groups of scholars that are, are really kind of focused on these different puzzles and really trying to understand how these puzzles kind of um, evolve and kind of develop in different contexts. And when I say puzzles, puzzles evolving coalitions and learning and policy change. Um, so what's neat about it is that you'll, you know, I regularly work with scholars from around the world who are applying it in different countries and we're understanding how the politics differs and, and why this matters a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, if we care about the outcomes of society, we know these outcomes are actually shaped by these coalitions and how they operate. If we care about the future of humanity, knowing that we're kind of imperfect in our information and our own knowledge, we know that we have to learn and adapt. And so what are the barriers to learning? Uh, what facilitates learning? And, and of course, you know, I do think there's a role in government in a lot of our problems that we face. And so what shapes government decision-making? And ACF can inform all that. Um, and it has for like, 30 years or so. Uh, 
Yeah, and there is some interesting overlaps between the ACF and, and let's say, the other, another, you know, we'd probably say one of the most important research programs in, in the world, and that came out of the Bloomington School on um, Institutional Analysis and Development Framework. Um, the ACF was, the first version of that was written in 1982 in Bellefield, Germany, uh, by Paul Sabatier, and he was there on, a, I believe, a year-long sabbatical, and Len Ostrom and Vincent Ostrom were both there. And uh, you know this, Mike, in 1982, that's also when Kaiser and Ostrom first published the, uh, one of the original versions of IED in the book chapter. And, uh, and, and Paul Sabatier, um, I think, took some inspiration from that. You'll see changes in institutions, and you'll see some basic structure in the ACF that kind of mirrors aspects of the IED. Uh, Paul and Lynn were good friends back then. Um, and actually, I mean, I actually have handwritten notes from Lynn to Paul about, you know, strategies for improving the ACF and how it was originally designed. And so, uh, uh, and, and actually, in, interestingly enough, I mean, you know, Lynn Ostrom's, uh, of course, one of the most, I think, influential political scientists over the last 50 years globally. Um, but what's interesting about a lot of her work is it was kind of rejected by political scientists and, and kind of ignored by a lot of these people in the field for until she won the Nobel Prize. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I do give credit to Paul Sabatier too, and I think it goes back to Bellafield, that he brought the IAD along with all these other policy theories, including multiple streams and books with equilibrium in those theories books, which basically gave that approach visibility to the policy world and part of the political science world. And a lot of people, even as the current editor of that book, the people tell me, I mean, a lot of people don't understand the IAD enough to teach it. A lot of people have written me and said or told me, you know, they don't think that theory belongs in that book. And I'm, I'm glad it's there, but it's interesting how our social networks shape the field in unusual ways. I often wonder if, if Sabatier and the Ostroms weren't in Bellfield at the same time, what would have happened to, you know, would the ACF have developed as it would be? Um, would IED be in the theories of the policy process book? What, how would we have, you know, how, you know, what would have been the impact on academia? Um, yeah, that's interesting, Chris. Do you have a sense of why maybe folks in, say, the political science community were dismissive of Lynn's work? Oh, I don't know. I can tell you as, as you know, it, I really like the IAD framework, but it's not an easy thing to get to understand. And, the, and then the community, because it's such a tightly knit research program, and it's also more of a way of thinking than a lot of these other uh, approaches. And so you can see people applying the, like say the IAD framework and it's almost in the background. Uh, oh, I totally agree actually, yeah. And so it's just hard to see. And I think that's the main reason why. Another reason why I think it, it also, um, the terminology is a lot different than, um, than often found in, in political science. And I think, and, and, and I think this is just, it has kind of comes, yeah, I think it's just from Vincent and, and Lynn's kind of background and kind of an interdisciplinary approach and um, influences of game theory or whatnot uh, and all these other things that influence that, what goes on there. Um, I think that's part of it. But also another interesting thing too, and, and this is just my impression of the community, but I do think that, uh, you know, there's such strong norms in the, in the Bloomington School about how to think about approach research that when let's say Lynn would write up, let's say a chapter in the theories of the policy process book in the, a long time ago is trying to translate the way they did research into a chapter. And I think a lot of times people did it, and this is a bit of an exaggeration, but a little bit the other way around, uh, you might find um, scholars not writing up how they do research, maybe how they want to do it, or maybe, um, they didn't quite have, let's say, the, the norms weren't quite as established. So I think what you read in Len's work is never a complete translation in terms of how things were actually done. And I think this leads to different interpretations of her work and makes it hard because if you read written text, like the rules and form are sometimes the same as the rules in use, but not always. And I think, I think that make, makes it hard to kind of for outsiders. I mean, I would say that fits with my experience as I guess I would say an insider in this Ostrom community. Um, 
you know, sometimes it seems like if a paper didn't say that it used the ID framework, I wouldn't have known that it did. Well, yeah, I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. And, you know, I mean, I think you know this, but, you know, as an outsider, I was like, I want to learn this stuff back in 2006. And so, you know, the, and that's when I read the Crawford and Ostrom piece on the institutional grammar. I was like, well, I can code this. And I just kind of thought that's what all the IED scholars did. I, I didn't think this was anything different or new. And, uh, and that's, I think that's a good example of someone trying to get in, not knowing how the research is done, grasping at something. And for me, I just like got lucky in terms of no one had done it before. Right. Okay. So getting back to the advocacy coalition framework, it seems like using it would involve measuring some tricky concepts like power, power asymmetries, and say change over time. Are there methodological implications of using the ACF? Do people tend to use certain methods, say case studies, say longitudinal analyses um, that fit best with the use of the framework? You know, it's interesting with the ACF, um, and we're very explicit in the writing on this. We, we endorse like a methodological pluralism in that um, we just, we embrace the different methods that people bring to a problem. And we do this in part because it's a global research effort and it's easier to, let's say, administer a survey in some settings than others. We also do it because some questions require certain types of data that have certain strengths. And some questions um, might require a totally different set of data and different strengths and also different weaknesses as an example. So if you want to understand long-term patterns of, let's say, of, of coalitions over, let's say, 20 years, and if you want to do this comparatively across countries, there's, there's going to be just a few types of data sets that you can probably access that allow you to do that. Unless you wanted to actually live 20 years and collect this data in real time. Like you can't, it's hard, you can't go back and do interviews 20 years ago, right? But right. you can't look at documents, you can look at newspapers, you can look at um, mostly something written down and you can analyze it over time. But of course, anytime you look at, you know, newspapers is a good example of this. You know, newspapers, you know, how representative are those to the, the politics that's really happening? Um, there's clearly limitations, but the strengths are that you can analyze a, 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 a policy issue over time and, and see how the debates changed and how the discourse changed and um, who, was involved, who was involved, at least in, those, in, in that particular discourse venue. Then other questions, and that's if you want to go over time, but you lose the depth and the, and the, and the thickness of your, of your case. And so if you want to understand, like, say, what's going on right now with COVID-19, let's say, in the oil and gas sector, you might want to do you know, a bunch of interviews and really dive into how these organizations are responding to global changes in oil prices and lower, uh, reduction in energies. And, and you can really dive into how these organizations are coordinating their activities, framing the problem, engaging in public discourse debates. Um, and, and, you know, but again, it's going to be probably a snapshot of a one-year snapshot at best. And that has great strengths, but doesn't have that longitudinal aspect. And ideally, we do both. But in the ACF, what, one thing we're good at, or at least we try to be good at, is embracing these different techniques and their strengths and weaknesses. And knowing that when we put all this information together, we'll get a better understanding of the policy processes. Okay, that's helpful. Something else that jumps out at me about the ACF is this concept of a policy subsystem. Could you just talk a bit about what that is and how it's used? Uh, yes, absolutely. It is kind of like, so a, a policy subsystem if you, uh, is basically a subset of, let's say, a political system or a governing system. It, um, it focuses on a topical area, let's say oil and gas, usually a uh, uh, some sort of geographical scope. And, and that depends on the country. So France, for example, is a unitary political system. So there's no, it's not a federal system like the US. And so a lot of the subsystems there are kind of uh, anchored around the national government. Uh, of course, you can have some at the lower scales too. In the US, of course, you have subsystems at the national scale and, the, and at state level, uh, sometimes even across states, depending on the issue. Um, and, and what's important about these subsystems is that they're really the scale where um, this is just an assumption. I think it's, there's some reality to it. It's a scale by which uh, people who are actively trying to shape the course of a policy topic interact and, and basically try to uh, influence 
uh, this, the decision and the course of, um, let's say, um, you know, the implementation of those decisions for impacting outcomes. And, and of course, these subsystems interact. They're, they're, meaning they're, they're interdependent. Oil and gas affects water. Um, education affects, you know, aspects over economy or whatever. Um, if you go in almost any subsystem, say, okay, who's, you know, who's in the know? Who's trying to influence this? And you'll get a list of people. And that's who we target. And, you know, these subsystems, um, you know, the, the decision-making venues could be physically within them. Uh, you know, oil and gas in Colorado, we have, um, you know, regulatory agencies in the state, state legislature, governor's office that are kind of some of the major venues and some of the venues are outside of the state, maybe, maybe aspects of the federal government uh, on some aspects and some issues to it. And so, uh, and so just because people are kind of located within a venue doesn't, or in a subsystem doesn't mean they don't, let's say, shop outside of it to, to influence it. I won't, I won't dwell on this too long, but one of the reasons why it's important and why it came out is it, was, it emerged in the 1980s, in part response to, to the public administration scholars at the time who kind of focused heavily on the single administrative agency and, and knowing that decisions often evolve um, more than one program. It involves the intersection of multiple agencies, multiple programs, multiple policies that, that affect, let's say, the course of a topical area in a certain location. And so that's kind of where it emerged. And, uh, and also, even before the ACF used subsystems, there's other terms too. too. Uh, sub-governments is one term. Uh, ACF was also, I should say, Paul Sabatier developed subsystems in part in response to the limitations of iron triangles, which is another kind of sub-government of, of the U.S. or any political system involving a, regu a regulatory agency, a congressional subcommittee, and an interest group. Um, and the ACF just kind of bronze that to include any actor trying to influence it, not just that iron triangle. Okay. And can you tell listeners why that's referred to as an iron triangle? You know, that's a good, another good question. Uh, in part because it was uh, supposedly like the image was like supposedly like kind of like solid and hard, right? It's impenetrable, not hard to break. But interestingly enough, I mean, uh, the origin of the term iron triangle is, uh, is, is largely kind of uh, somewhat guessed at, but mostly unknown. Uh, Large in the 1960s, and some people give credit to Ted Bowie for it, but he never really used the term in his early writings. Um, so it's kind of one of these terms that doesn't have a clear beginning. Um, okay. So the idea that you need to expand your perspective beyond an agency-centric analysis makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it basically is just reflecting this idea that if, if we're going to try to understand an outcome, we need to include all the factors that affect that outcome. And that includes things beyond what's happening in a particular agency. And really this idea that subsystems, policy subsystems affect each other is just another step in the same direction, right? I mean, it's saying we can't just look at one subsystem. We have to look at multiple subsystems and how they affect each other. Um, but then I think we have this question of where do, where do we stop, right? It's similar to case study analyses that have the same question. What, what, what gets into the case and what um, is excluded? Because we have to stop somewhere. So I guess um, the next question would be, do, do ACF scholars look at multiple subsystems at once? And is that challenging? Yes, it is challenging. Um, you know, on the multiple subsystems, I mean, going back to our current pandemic, uh, there's a whole literature on transboundary uh, crises, which is what we're experiencing, where it's essentially a shock exposes the interdependencies of our subsystems. So basically, uh, you know, you reduce, you know, you stress the health system, uh, affect, you know, kids at home, once the kids are at home, and then essentially that's the education system that affects basically almost every workforce. And you see this rippling effects of not just the, the pandemic, the, the COVID-19 virus, but, but basically our decisions to that, actually. Um, and so I think the thing about subsystems is um, they, there are kind of partitioned, they're constructed, we construct them uh, in response to complexity. And when we construct them, you kind of ignore the, um, the you kind of assume they're somewhat um, semi-autonomous um, to the others. And you don't assume that they're completely autonomous, but they're semi-autonomous. So you kind of ignore the interactions until they become something you need to pay attention to, <laughs> or like we do right now. And, and we do that in part because we can't pay attention to everything. So we have to partition and make sense of it. 
and and a big literature on subsystems is that they do kind of exist and endure over time. Uh, they function, they they deliver the the products, and they do it mostly outside the public eye, actually, largely outside the media eye. Um, and and that's what kind of enables our our political system to parallel process a lot of decision making um, and and a lot of our uh, just deal with societal problems. Uh, but then when, when that happens, we also undersell or undervalue the um, not just the interdependencies, which is there, but also the the risks involved, i.e., let's say from a crisis that can stress one system, and then then those interdependencies that we kind of ignored really come to light, and that's and that's 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 actually one of the I think lessons from this, and I do think you'll probably see a lot more sub you know multiple subsystem analyses coming out of of this crisis because it uh, uh, these boundaries are just so evident. Uh, now, how you do that? That's going to be a challenge because you. Uh, it's hard enough studying one subsystem uh, and trying to do it over time, uh, do it across topics, uh, requires um, some heavy expertise. Uh, we're looking at right now just oil and gas subsystems across 15 states, and our you know and there's a good team of scholars doing this. This is funded by the National Science Foundation, and our hands are full. Um, and that's the same topic. I think you could probably get signals from these subsystems and their interdependencies via, let's say, the discourse and policy or hearings and so forth. Uh, In-depth analysis will be hard. Okay. Um, so Chris, this reminds me of the concept of a boundary actor or a boundary spanner. This, this actor who's able to make a bridge between two different groups based on their ability to speak the lingo or the jargon or otherwise be accepted to some extent by each of the groups. Um, you know, in the work that a lot of us do on the commons, thinking about collective action, um, this kind of actor becomes important really quickly. If you want to try to manage a large resource or resolve a large environmental problem, you're going to have multiple groups. So you're going to need someone who's able to um, bridge the social gap between those interdependent groups of fishers or farmers or bureaucrats or what have you. Um, I think the most common context in which a boundary actor is talked about is the science policy interface. So trying to get the science and the policy worlds to talk to each other. And I mean, it occurs to me that this concept would be really useful in the context of studying different policy subsystems and the connection between them. Um, so does this idea resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it gets them to also I mean, exactly what you're saying right there. I would even broaden it a little bit more knowing that, you know, we have our brains and we have the world outside and we kind of make sense of that world through our language. And a lot of that is like, yeah, scientific vocabulary, but also there's other types of vocabulary and words and values that are expressed. And just trying to understand that and communicate it, um, that's, that's, a, that's a huge problem, actually. And in part because, like, you know, we've kind of mentioned a little bit, um, you know, sometimes we're not always the best at understanding and listening to each other. <laughs> or when we hear words, we think the words mean one thing, but actually they mean something else. Or we exactly. Don't even, or or yes. we don't even re realize that a word has like, you know, real meaning to someone. <laughs> you, know, you know, like for example, in the Ostrom world, if you say the word institutions, it has meaning. And and a lot of other scholars, it, it's kind of more, um, I don't know, amorphous in its meaning. Uh, I mean, I think it's funny, right? Like academics, uh, rightly or wrongly, have this reputation for caring a lot about meaning um, and really wanting to parse the meaning of one term versus another. But at the same time, we talk past each other a lot of the time. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is with the concept of property rights. Um, to some people, property rights is a pretty general term, and to others, it really means a specific kind of, say, private property right. And those different interpretations can make it pretty easy to have, you know, an hour-long argument over an initial misunderstanding of what different people mean by that concept. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I don't think we spend enough time actually just on the words and vocabulary we use. I think one of the reasons we don't do that is because uh, we don't even realize that we're using different words. And uh, and I think it's almost easier for, let's say. Uh, scholars from two completely different disciplines, let's say ecology and let's say political science to, to work together, then two from very related fields. I don't know, let's say public administration and I don't know, uh, political theorists, because they might use similar terms, but the, the, the differences in the meaning are, are so subtle that they just kind of overlook them. 
Right. Um, it's almost better to kind of work with someone completely opposite. At least you're coming there with the idea that you need to, you can't assume anything basically. Right. Yeah. Um, Chris, I'd like to also talk to you about this center that you co-run with um, Tanya Heikela there, the Center for Policy Process Research. So I'd love to hear, Chris, um, about how that program, that center got started and what your goals have been for it and what they are moving forward into the future. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I co-direct the workshop on policy process research uh, with uh, Tanya Heikela and, and uh, it, it is a, uh, kind of like a research group, um, you know, it's us two, and we have some, you know, other faculty affiliates at CU Denver, but also uh, outside. And we always have a, just an amazing group of PhD students who uh, I think sometimes I think are more the directors than we are. And, uh, you know, I think that, I think one thing that Tanya and I bring to the table is, is like a passion for theory. You know, uh, Tanya came more out of the Ostrom tradition, um, as we talked about, and, you know, I kind of worked with Paul Sabatier and, and, um, and we both uh, kind of value the, the art of using concepts to understand the world and interrelating those concepts through theories. And so I think a lot of our students um, and us uh, really focus on basically, um, uh, in, you know, developing theory, improving theory, and so forth. But what's neat about the, the workshop that we run is that, we, you know, I think compared to a lot of other places, we, we do... Uh, a lot of schools will have like one theoretical approach and Indiana was this way and Rostrum made to the IED. Um, and I think what our students learn is uh, how to view the world through multiple lenses and, and not only on the surface, but in depth. So, you know, our students will leave well-versed in the ACF, well-versed in IED framework and sometimes other approaches too, depending on the research we're doing. And so that's one thing. And, and second, I would say is we do kind of have this kind of, um, uh, dedication to kind of both doing engaged scholarship, um, which involves giving back to the community and, and also working, doing science for science sake, as we kind of talked about before. And so, um, you know, depending on the research, we do engage a lot with our, our local stakeholders. And other times, you know, we'll just spend, you know, maybe too much time doing something that only academics would care about. And, and we, we kind of embrace both of those purposes. And so it is a, uh, um, you know, we do take visiting scholars, so anybody listening, we, we welcome them. And uh, um, and it's something that, uh, you know, the future of it, where we're going, you know, it's kind of, you know, it is kind of a, it's a system that we have our general goals of, you know, we're focusing right now a lot on the nature of policy conflict, conflict over public policy issues, political conflict in particular. And, and, uh, and so a lot of research is around that, but, you know, we're always focusing on the role of institutions and rules and uh, our government and politics and coalitions, a lot of the things we talked about, we focus on. So I think it depends on, you know, especially with the COVID-19, I think, you know, there's gonna be uh, a lot of new questions like we've already talked about, like these perhaps overlapping and intersecting subsystems and how do we govern and understand those, how do we make our systems more res resilient. Um, and, and so I can imagine uh, some of our research just gravitating towards these societal problems. And, I, and uh, what those are exactly, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it sounds fantastic, Chris. Um, can I ask you a, a follow-up question that might seem obvious, given that um, Tanya, for example, was educated in a center at Indiana University um, called the Workshop on Biblical Theory and Policy Analysis. But why did, did you all decide to call your center a workshop? Oh, you know, actually, at first, it, uh, uh, <laughs> I think it, we had a different name before. Um, we just kind of uh, respected what was going on in Indiana and the workshop there. Um, and, and so we had a different name and honestly, I forgot what that name was originally. This is back in 2010. But, but then we realized that what we were doing is a workshop. And when I mean workshop, we, we are constantly tinkering with ideas and, 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 and working together. It's very much a flat organizational structure. Uh, nothing's ever really done. We're always kind of doing this and that. There's a, a large aspect of what we do is um, just as much craft and, and art as it is, let's say, science. Um, and and so and there's a practical element to it, but also scientific. So I guess you know we just kind of thought the the workshop name and how we understand it from Indiana fit what we're doing. So we're like, yeah, why not? 
Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, Chris. It reminds me of um, an experience that I had at the beginning of graduate school at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs a long time ago now. Uh, a dean walked into a room where a bunch of the first-year graduate students were sitting, and she said that we were about to embark on a, a monastic experience. And, you know, on one hand, that sounds kind of romantic. You're pursuing your life's dream and all that. But it also sounded a little bit um, isolating, and I know there's this discourse out there, rightly so, I think, about the social isolation that um, graduate students can feel when they're kind of slogging away at their own projects. And so when I started working at, the, at Lynn's workshop, Lynn and Ostrom's workshop in Indiana after my first year, year and a half um, in the program, it was really just eye-opening and nourishing the, the sociality that was there, the collegiality, the sharing of a common space and sharing ideas really felt artisanal in the best sense of the word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely, you know, it, what's unusual about it, I mean, uh, you know, Tony and I um, get along both as, as colleagues and friends, and I do think you need kind of like the leaders to to collaborate, but also you want enough tension to um, challenge, then I think we have that. And uh, I mean, so much follows from that, right, Chris? I feel like if you get the right leaders in the room and they get along and there's a culture of, of openness that the other pieces kind of fall into place. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know what, what I want uh, is, you know, one thing I, I, I wish we had, like that Ostrom had, is that wonderful building. And, and, uh, and you know what we do have is the School of Public Affairs, which is a, a you know they support us. We have wonderful staff and supporting faculty. But man, I I, I love that building that Ostrom's had. Yeah, it was a special place. Really, you could walk just from one building to the next, and you you could always depend on, or at least frequently depend on, uh, seeing a colleague of yours that you could chat with. We talk a lot about you know place attachment and the importance of it for say natural resource users, but I think it's equally important for I mean it's important for everyone. Um, you want to feel like you belong. And when you do, again, other things kind of fall into place. And if you don't, it's, it's kind of this thing that nags at you. Um, okay, so Chris, the, the final big question I have for you then is, you know, what's next? What do you want to do in the future um, individually or collectively working with current or future colleagues? Um, you know, there's a lot of... I think, well, the challenge for me personally is saying no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we all got to flex our no muscle, right? I, I just don't have one, honestly. But, uh, you know, I, I can tell you right now, like, you know, I, I, I'm really in, in enjoying the work I'm doing on conflict right now with Tanya, and I'm embarking on new work on the role of emotions in public policy, and or from an interpretivist perspective, and I'm enjoying that. Um, I'm still exploring uh, kind of the role of institutions rules as written in public policy, but very much from a large end um, quantitative basis. And so in a way, I, I just think there's, I just wish I had more time, honestly, to do what I do and, uh, and you know how it is. Sometimes you, you get run, uh, spread so thin that you kind of uh, lose track of the big picture or you don't quite, aren't quite able to, dive in as deep as you want to dive in. Oh yes. Yep. And that that's a, makes it just kind of hard. I don't have solutions to that. I, I actually, I'm not very good at dealing with that. So, um, well, I'm glad you didn't say no to this interview. Well, never, never have done that. No, this has been fun, Mike. It has Chris. Yeah. I mean, I think we all struggle with these things. Um, you know, when you spread yourself too thin, you feel like you can't really invest in one particular project and it's that investment that really, produces the reward that makes you identify with what you're doing as opposed to feeling like you're just investing a part of yourself um, in a lot of things at once. Um, okay, Chris, well, I guess I have last question version two now that you've um, gone and been interesting again. I'd love to hear more about this work on the relationship between emotions and policy and politics. I think that, at least in my experience, is not something that's, those aren't connections that are frequently made. So. Um, what are the connections that you're hoping to make? You know, uh, this is <laughs> this is a new thing that I'm working with with a colleague, uh, um, Anna Dernova, uh, who's an interpretivist, and uh, and I, I will I will basically um, 
give her the nod for uh, leading the charge on this and just basically dragging me along. But, uh, you know, the large part of what I'm doing recently is kind of developing and uh, um, kind of working on the relationship between, let's say, more mainstream policy scholars uh, that take more of a, you can call it a, traditionally more of a positivist perspective to our science and to more of an interpretivist approach, which uh, is just based on different um, philosophical foundations. And, uh, and there's been a lot of conflict between these schools of thought. And I, I don't, uh, you know, we have a paper coming out right now in policy sciences that talks about how a lot of these conflicts have been overblown and there's opportunities for good collaboration and, and hybrid approaches. And so um, Anna Dronova and I uh, are going to start exploring these kind of uh, hybrid approaches to science from mainstream and interpretive approaches in the area of emotions, uh, especially around policy legitimacy most recently. And, and, and uh, you know, and I think for, I don't want to speak too much for Anna because she's not here, but, uh, you know, here it's just like basically how emotions are part of our knowledge basis and how it's used um, to uh, um, legitimize um, various problems in society. And also like, you know, how, how words actually have um, pack emotions. And so we will be looking at it from a very much a small scale, let's say, um, interpretivist perspective, but also large scale, kind of more of a quantitative perspective and to kind of merge those. So I'm really excited to do, because it kind of, um, again, it gets into like, we're talking about uh, the importance of vocabulary and kind of uh, bridging subsystems. We have the same thing in, in our sciences when we try to like approach the world from an interpretivist versus a mainstream perspective and how important it is just to understand the differences in that vocabulary in terms of how we do our science and our craft. You know, how we portray the world and merging those into a common um, kind of a, uh, at least a commonly understood understanding or understandings, um, how we could do that as scholars. And so that's kind of one thing I, I don't have enough, I'm not spending enough time on, but it, it is something that I'm, we'll be embarking on this summer. I mean, I think that's fantastic, Chris. I think that's the direction that we need to be heading in say the environmental social sciences. There's still a lot of, um, barriers between different scientific groups. There's a lot of outgroup homogenization that goes on. People implicitly at least say, oh, those, those interpretivists or oh, those quants, you know, we all have so much to learn from each other, but it's, it's surprisingly easy to not do that. I think that's right. And also it's, you know, we invest so much of our personality into our, our science that it's, it's easy to kind of, I think, see threats or, or even questioning um, can be perceived as a threat, even if it's a, a benign question. And also there's history here that can't be ignored because there's a, like a lot of disagreements and conflicts. Um, sometimes there's a loadedness um, that you know, I'm becoming more aware of and um, trying to deal with as a, you know, as someone trying to um, improve the field of policy studies. Um, this has been kind of one of the joys of trying to uh, deal with the last, especially the last year or two. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, essnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on. Until next time.